He really hit this chord with this piece. This gamelan piece that I, I wrote called Gongan, and there I used all kinds of weird stuff. Um, alligator clips and plastic discs and all kinds of things. They wanted something classical that anyone listening would say, oh, that's classical music. But they would also know, oh, it's hard. You know, whoever's playing it must be pretty good. And then they wanted like this sort of irreverent blues ending to it. Hey everyone, and welcome back to All Strings Considered. I'm your host, Scott Wolf. All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Guitar Salon International, the world's largest selection of fine classical and flamenco guitars and accessories. This week, I spoke to William Kanengeiser about his current performing projects like Shingo Fuji's works for guitar orchestra and soloist, about his composing and experimental approach to arranging in the LA Guitar Quartet, his love of cooking, but personally, my favorite of Bill's many talents is one you might not already be familiar with. He does these amazing impressions of the guitar greats, like Pepe Romero. What I'd like to do tonight is invite some of the leading personalities of our instrument to sort of weigh in on their, their feelings about where the guitar is coming from, where it's going. The greatest instrument ever created. <laughs> The guitar. <laughs> it has seductive chords, sensuous tones, soft, supple strings, and when I play her, it's like making love to a beautiful woman. <laughs> I stroke her, I caress her, I bring out all of the tenderness inside of her, and together we move to an incredible musical climax. And when I'm finished, I have a nice cigar. Odair Assad from the Assad Brothers duo. We're in little thong bikini. <laughs> she walk totally like that. She's like a samba, you know? It's like the music there, like this part is the beat. And that part is, is the syncopation. <laughs> That's a music. That's music. I mean, Christopher Parkening. So, uh, Christopher, I wanted to ask you, what, what do you feel about you know, the evolution of the guitar so far? Uh, you know, Bill, I, I really don't believe in, in evolution. I mean, I have to say that I think the guitar was created. It, it was made manifest in all its perfection by our, our maestro, Andres Scobie. Or the fantastic Julian Bream. In my day, you had to do a bit of work. I mean, even finding a little tin by Taurega or Emilio Pujol <laughs> was like 
unearthing King Tut's bloody tomb. I mean, you're all so pathetically spoiled, it makes me want to puke. Those were heady days back then, you know. We were filled with excitement, adventure. I mean, we were hell-bent for leather. I mean, working with real composers. Hans von Ahenza, Malcolm Arnold, Benjamin Britten. Virile, manly composers who weren't afraid to, to express themselves. Not like these flaccid, impotent panderers today who write this bland pablum for the masses like you play in your L.A. guitar quartet. By the way, those excerpts are taken from a YouTube video of Bill's routine at the 2005 GFA Festival. If you search 2005 Guitar Foundation of America and the word Geyser, it should top the search results. Speaking of LAGQ, Bill does a substantial share of the arranging and composing for the Grammy-winning LA Guitar Quartet, of which he is a founding member. So I asked him about how they achieve so many of these sounds that truly sound nothing like a guitar, yet are played on that instrument. There was this period when we first signed with Sony, they really wanted us to do like a world music I love thing. that CD, absolutely love it. You know, so it was like, well, how do we make guitars sound like other instruments? And, and you know, I, I stole an idea from Dushan actually, putting a staple attached to two adjacent strings. And it makes this kind of rattle. And that works really well for this African kind of sound. I used it in a piece called Imbira. So you can take a staple and drape it across, say, your second and third strings, and then bend the legs slightly of the staple so that they can sort of hold on to those two strings. And you get a sound like LAGQ does on Bill's piece called Mubira, which is actually the name of the instrument it's imitating, the African thumb piano. Here's an actual Mbira being played. And here's the LAGQ version. Pretty cool, huh? And then we did this um, this gamelan piece that I, I wrote um, called Gongan. And there I used all kinds of weird stuff. Um, alligator clips and plastic discs and all kinds of things. Is the big gong that's in there also a guitar? Everything's guitar. Everything. You, you want me to demonstrate it? Sure, if you want to. Well, hold on. Okay. <laughs> Give me a sec to set this up. Hold yeah. on. Well, what I've got, the, the radio listeners can't really see what I'm doing. Um, what I've got are, if you can envision, like a little round plastic disc. It's about half the size of a dime. It's made out of the uh, same material used for a bread, bread loaf tie. You know, like the little white plastic things, they 
Oh, yeah. You know, okay. hold, hold loaves of bread oh, yeah, closed, yeah, you know? Clip on and there, I, yeah. I cut it into a little circle and then put a little slit in there, and the, it slips on with a slit onto one of the treble strings. So the little, the little disc sits on the string, I push it near the bridge, and it creates this... Then I take, I have another one where I actually attach with a staple this little tiny, like Christmas bell ornament. Okay, and then the final thing is on one of the bass strings, on the D string, I've got this alligator clip. You know, it's, I mean, other, some people might describe it as a roach clip. And it's it's just the the edge of the jaw of the, of the alligator clip is on one of the strings. It just sort of lightly hangs there. And when I pluck it, you get this. That is so cool. That's amazing. Yeah, took amazing. a little bit of ingenuity, you know. And if you put them in different places, you know, this one's on the fifth string in a slightly different place, and I clip it on slightly differently, you get. It's all guitar, you know. So a lot of people, when they first heard that tune, they thought it was all like either processed or there were other instruments or whatever. It's exactly the sound coming off our guitars. All right, let's hear those two pieces off LAGQ's self-titled album. First, let's hear Gongan, a piece inspired by the sounds of the Indonesian gamelan, and then Mabira, named for the African thumb piano that the piece is imitating.
No one in my family played music. My brother dabbled in it, but he wasn't very good. He was an artist. Uh, my dad loved music, though, and when I was growing up, you know, there was always music in the house. You know, mostly jazz. I would say that was the number one thing. A lot of classical music and opera. But I just fell in love with the guitar totally independently. I still remember when I was, maybe I was four or five years old, I kind of begged my dad to make me a, uh, a stand-up bass out of a cigar box, rubber bands, and a broomstick handle. And I came into the family room and, and did a recital. Actually, my brother got it because he wanted to, to learn to play guitar. He was terrible at it. Uh, he, he had this little book, instruction book, and he wouldn't let me touch the guitar, and I really wanted to. And he spent like two months trying to go through the book, and, and then finally, sort of in desperation, he said, okay, here, you can, you can have it. And in like, you know, three days, I had gone through half the book, and he was really, really mad. How old were you? I was, I was like eight or nine. Huh. I think officially nine when I started. Huh. But that first guitar was not exactly, you know, pristine, handmade, classical guitar. We got it through, some of your listeners might remember S&H Green Stamps. My customers don't want vegetables. They want fresh vegetables. Fresh fruit, too. There are thousands of items. Things like friendliness and neatness count, too. In fact, everything's important in keeping my customers happy. That's why we give S&H Green Stamps. Not just any stamp, S&H Green Stamps. That's why so many women keep coming back here. Men, too. Most men who shop will say, don't let me forget my S&H green stamps. My wife will shoot me if I go home without them. You know, in the 60s when your moms would go shopping, they would collect these really disgusting books of stamps you'd have to lick and paste into these books, and you'd collect like 46 books of these stamps and redeem them. It was really, really <laughs> inconvenient. Yeah, and not to mention it, you know. Not very uh, yeah. good for your health or for the environment. Uh. Um, but anyway, so my first guitar was an S&H Green Stamp guitar. <clears throat> Not too good. But uh, after you know a little a little while, um, I became really interested in the music that was starting to become become really popular then. You know, there's rock and roll, Beatles, uh, James Taylor, Joni Mitchell, Crosby, Stills and Nash. You know, all the stuff that my older brothers were listening to that was really really hot right then. It was you know. And Woodstock, you know th yeah. those those days, you know. So were you playing with a pick back then? No, I never. I almost never played with a pick. I played with my fingers, you know. And I, I still remember like the you know the feeling of just complete elation when I figured out the opening slide lick from Fire and Rain, that little do you know at the beginning of the James Taylor tune, just that little lick, you know. And I was like, oh my god! Really, one of the first kind of complicated songs I learned. One of my brother's friends uh, showed me how to play Blackbird. And they kind of wrote it out in this sort of rudimentary tablature system, you know, so I could sort of figure it out. Uh -huh. And so it was really pop music that got me towards guitar playing and inadvertently got me into classical. Because at, at one point there was a teacher, this guy who was going to be a teacher, but I was moving from California back to New Jersey. So he said, well, I, I don't have time to teach you, but I was going to give you one piece or another to work on when you go home, when mm -hmm. you go back to New Jersey. And he, he played them both for me. One was some sort of jazz piece. And the other one was the Bure in E minor. And I said, ooh, ooh, I, I know that one. Because I knew a stand-up by Jethro Tull. You know, Jethro Tull did that sort of, you know, swung version of, of Bure. Yeah. And I said, oh, I know that piece. I want to learn it. 
And that was my first classical piece. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I learned it myself. I kind of figured it out. Yeah, and then I really wasn't very serious about about classical guitars specifically. I had dreams of being, you know, a, a multi-dimensional guitarist. You know, a rock and roll guy who played some jazz and who played some funk and played some, you know, fusion and and then some classical on the side. And like Steve Howe from Yes was my idol because he could do all those different styles. And when I was in high school, we had a band, uh, Euphoria, was our band in high school. We actually won the Battle of the Bands when I was a junior, and we played a couple of Yes tunes. You know, and you know that was my thing. That's become kind of that in a way. Well, in a weird way, my early experience with rock and jazz and and different styles came full circle. Forty years later, quartets playing stuff that's sort of related to it. It's, it's not like that those languages are, are that unfamiliar to me. But when I started high school, I played for a like a family gathering. I played, uh, I think I played Mood for a Day by, by Steve Howe for Rosh Hashanah dinner, you know, for my cousins and my aunts and uncles. And my cousin, who was the classical pianist, said, Bill, you know, you should study classical guitar because I was playing nylon string. And he said, when I was in high school, I went to music school in New York every every Saturday and it was Manus Conservatory and they had a prep school for aspiring high school kids. At first my parents gave me a ride in but when I was older I would just take the train, take the bus into New York and every Saturday I would have ear training and music theory and then private guitar lessons. Herbert Levine was the first guitar teacher, first classical guitar teacher I really ever had. And I didn't know anything certainly about the guitar world. I really didn't meet another classical guitarist except for my teacher until I went to USC when I was 18. Yeah. I showed up at USC and it's like, oh, there's, there's Agnes Narciso and Tom Wong and, and you know, all these unbelievable players. I didn't even really want to go to USC because of classical guitar. I went because they were the, one of the only schools in the country at that time that had any kind of studio jazz program too. And I wanted to do both. I wanted to be a, you know, this multifaceted guy. Right. When I ended up there, I realized uh, <laughs> I'm not a very good electric guitar player. <laughs> you know, there's these other guys who were just awesome. But, you know, I met Pepe. I didn't know who Pepe was. You know, it was like, who's this somebody Romero? Huh. But pretty soon he sort of turned me around. He said, the electric guitar is, is a cupcake. It is very sweet to eat, but it won't fill you up. <laughs> so, so he encouraged me to like sell my, my beautiful gold top 1973 Les Paul, which I should have kept because it'd be worth a lot of money now. Um, but uh, sold all my gear, my, my boogie amp, and got a decent guitar and, and started playing a little bit. And you know, within two or three years, Scott showed up in the quartet. Quartet was formed and I got kind of serious and, you know, then, yeah, as they say, the rest is history. Let's hear Bill play one of his arrangements from his early years at USC. This is the third movement of Mozart's Piano Sonata in A Major, K331, also known as the Rondo alla Turca, 
a seriously ambitious piece to transfer from the piano to the guitar. You know, that was the Mozart sonata was my first, wasn't my first big solo arrangement. Well, it was, it was like a really ambitious thing to try. It's not like no one's ever arranged Mozart before. A lot of people have. And, you know, it's, it's, I found out much later that Pepe's father arranged that Rondo alla Turca for solo guitar years and years ago. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, to try to do the whole sonata was quite an undertaking. It worked especially well just because the first movement is a theme in variations. It's not, it's not a sonata form. So, you know, he doesn't modulate as much. Right. And, you know, the rondo is famous and it's wonderful and all that. But, you know, actually, I, I think the slow variation of the 
of the first movement and the middle section of the minuet are just, they don't work especially well, but they're just such beautiful pieces. It's like Soar could never come up with this. You know, it's like the same language, but it's just so much better. It's really sort of amazing what a genius Mozart was. It's utterly simple, but just so right, yeah. inevitable. Every note's just like, oh, that's gotta be the there. Yeah. Very good, Eugene. Very good up to a point. Most people approach Mozart with respect. Evidently, that's an attitude you are not familiar with. I'm sorry, I didn't mean any disrespect. I was just making a joke. Oh, the crossroads thing was, you know, just a perfect example of just, just completely lucking out, like being in the right place at the right time. I had, I, I was on the faculty at USC just, just for like two or three years. I was. You know, 23 or 24. And um, the producer of Crossroads knew Daniel Pollock, the piano, you know, legendary piano instructor. And I guess they were, they were really late, almost done filming in this project, you know, where Ralph Macchio was supposed to be a classical guitarist. And they, they just assumed that the fingerstyle guy could do the classical stuff. You know, they just didn't know the difference. And they realized really late, it's like, oh my God, we need, we need a classical guitarist like today. So he called Daniel Pollock and said, do you know anybody who could do this? And, and for some reason he said, there's this kid, Cannon Geyser, and I, I got this call. I mean, it was just utterly luck. And so I went in, they met, I met with them, and you know, they explained what they needed. And you know, they wanted me to like coach Ralph for like a couple weeks. They wanted me to record a couple pieces that made it look like he was playing, but I was playing. And then we did need to figure out this battle repertoire, you know, and so I actually, I met briefly with Ry Cooter, who was kind of the, the head of the composition stuff, and, and with Steve Vai and Arlen Roth. Arlen Roth was a wonderful guy who was, he was the head guitar coach, and he's a real phenomenal blues guy, especially. Mm. He founded Hot Licks Video. Kind of casting around, like, what pieces are we going to do, and, and I suggested some things, and it turned out that, you know, they wanted, they wanted something that was obviously classical, that anyone listening would say, oh, that's classical music, but they would also know, oh, it's hard. You know, whoever's playing it must be pretty good. And then they wanted this sort of irreverent blues ending to it to establish the character of Ralph in the scene where he was at, quote unquote, Juilliard, which of course didn't have a guitar program then, you know, but they used it because everybody knew Juilliard. Right. So I, 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 I played a few different things and I played this Mozart and they were like, oh yeah, that's, I recognize that. And, and actually Andy helped me figure out a little blues ending to it. Oh really? Yeah. It, so you you'd arranged it a while back. Yeah, I had already been playing it. You know, we laid that down and then I coached Ralph on it, you know, and he did a really good job. He was wonderful to work with. Mm -hmm. And Arlen was too. You know, Steve Vai was, I just met him once. I was like, you know, we're not worthy moment. You know, I was like, oh my God, it's Steve Vai. But he was very cool. He was very professional all business and, and very respectful and he's doing this unbelievable tapping stuff. Yeah.
And then I, I did like this simple, you know, sextuplet arpeggio. He's like, wow, how do you do that? I'm like, come on, give me a break. So, you know, it was just one of those one of those things. And as it, as it turned out, it was it was a pretty good thing for me, even though the movie really is kind of dumb. It had a cult following, mostly because of, of Steve, Steve Vai. He, he was amazing in it. He was so great. My biggest disappointment with the movie was I, I saw the script, like the working script, and it was awesome. It was great. He, Walter Hill was, uh, you know, was famous for like these like San Francisco cop action movies and you know oh. gritty. He had no, he was good for the action part, but he really didn't have the sensitivity about the music part. He just didn't really care. And so you know that was a little disappointment. They just focused on Ralph and the girl. Eighties teen angst kind of. Yeah, it was it was kind of weird. But but I obviously you know it was a wonderful thing for me and for whatever reason kind of got me unknown. It's my little claim to fame, I guess. Yeah, it's so cool. But it was totally. Just dumb luck. There's one piece on that Caribbean CD that I arranged that I don't think I'll ever play because <laughs> it's too damn hard. But it's it's real it's really kind of fun. When I was putting that together, there were a couple like obvious things. Which Caribbean composers and you know Leo Brower, okay, you know Ernesto Cordero from Puerto Rico, you know, and, and then I found some very cool Mexican pieces. And I did a little arranged a little Ponce piece. Actually, the intermezzo, that's a really beautiful piece. I actually, love that piece. yeah, that's a really beautiful piece. But I got into the music of Louis Moreau Gottschalk. And Gottschalk is this, you know, very colorful guy. He's kind of like the American Franz Liszt almost. You know, he's this larger than life, almost like P.T. Barnum meets Ling Ling, you know, in his day. I mean, he was he was a huge star. He toured all over South America. The day he died, there were there were mourners in the streets in Rio. You know, he had X number of illegitimate children spread all over the Caribbean. But he was he was born near New Orleans, and so he's a piano virtuoso. He wrote a lot of nationalistic tunes, you know, because he would go visit places, and then he would, the night before the gig, write these, you know, incredible variations on, like, the national anthem of wherever he happened to be. You know, he was, he was pretty amazing. That's pretty cool. I think he did a concert with... 200 pianos once, you know, like he had, had all these other people playing pianos. He was a real, real showman. Oh yeah, real character. But so he, he actually did a bunch of Caribbean pieces, but there's this one particular one. It's a souvenir of, of Puerto Rico and it's called Marcha de los Gibaros. And the Gibaros, G-I-B-A-R-O-S, this indigenous tribe. And it's just a, like a simple little tune and it's just this march that starts way in the distance and it gets closer and closer. It's got this insistent little rhythm. And then it, you know, it's like the party arrives and then it modulates into this awkward key and it's really hard, but then it goes off into the distance again. It's a, it's a very cool piece and it, it's almost playable. <laughs> it's almost playable. <laughs> yeah, but actually I, I really like it. It's one thing that you don't hear every day on guitar.
So let's hear his arrangement of Goldschalk's Souvenir of Puerto Rico. This recording is from William Kanegeiser's CD titled Caribbean Souvenirs. Thank you. 
I love to eat. And somehow, conversations I have magically steer towards food. And I often hear about how great Bill's cooking is. So I asked him about it. Uh, you know, cooking is, is definitely my, my fort, as they say. You do have to be careful. I, I actually almost cut my ring finger off this summer, last summer, like, uh, you know, taking the pit out of an avocado. And that, that, that was not too fun. It took me a while to recover from that. But yeah, so I, I, tr I treat my blades now with utmost respect. You know, many people have drawn the parallel between cooking and music making. You, you take these raw materials and you somehow assemble them together so that you can give this pleasurable experience to someone that you care about and they enjoy it and then it's gone. <laughs> you know, then it disappears. Yes. You know, it, it's, it's, it's a temporal <laughs> Very much so. pleasure, you know, that, that, that you have to experience firsthand when it's made, you know, and fresh. Just like food, there's, there's the musical equivalent of a gourmet meal and there's a musical equivalent to junk food. You know, or just raw sustenance, you know, just something to keep you alive versus, you know, a transcendent gastronomic experience. I pride myself on making pretty good meals really quick. With very little prep time, I can whip something up that's, that's pretty good. I make a, a very nice a bolognese, a meat gravy that I'll make a huge amount of and then I'll freeze it and it's great because then emergency meal just blunk. And I make it with like three different kinds of sausage and stuff and, mm. and you know it's from scratch. And then I do chicken piccata and things like that and the other night I made a chicken very thinly pounded, grilled it with olive oil, mm. put roasted tomatoes, pesto and fresh mozzarella on it. It was sort of like pizza but instead of a... Instead of dough, carbs and yeah, yeah, it was just chicken. Yeah, so I try to keep to do low carb and stuff. I do a couple Mexican things here and there. I do a little bit of Indian food. I do a little Thai food now and then. I just like to have fresh ingredients and cook it, you know, without a lot of oil and lay off the prepared foods. And yeah. I do really enjoy it. I think this one's the one I'm going to take home. I, I do a pretty decent Greek marinade, a bunch yogurt of vegetables. Kind of thing? Yogurt marinade? No, I, no I, my marinade is just lemon juice, olive oil, parsley oregano, salt and pepper, and garlic. How you know, long do you marinate it for? Um, if it's got the lemon juice, you can't do it too long. I would say uh -huh. about like three or four hours. Lemon juice will start to cook cook the chicken. Uh -huh. Yeah, three or four hours, and then I stir it. or something? Or? Oh yeah, in the fridge, yeah. yeah. Food safety. But I chop them up into little cubes and uh, usually throw onions in the marinade. And then I'll separately marinate mushrooms and bell peppers and zucchini. You skewer it. The hardest part is skewering it. So I wear like play tape, like rubber gloves, you know, to skewer it. And then, you know, just throw the whole thing on the grill and make a little bit of Greek salad with some, you know, some feta cheese. It's, it's a happy, it's go. a happy day. Yeah. You're making me hungry. One of my really good buddies these days is this Japanese guitar composer named Shingo Fuji. I first met him when I was on a tour. I needed a translator for one of my classes and this very correct, very gentlemanly guy shows up and he, he speaks really pretty good English and also very passable Spanish. And you know, we, we met for the class and, and just sort of hit it off a little bit and then after talking with him on the tour, he said, well my wife helps me do little concerts here in Kyoto where I live 
And we started talking and then through a friend of mine arranged another tour for like a year later. And we got to really know each other. And it was the first time I was actually in Kyoto and I just fell in love with the place. It's just, you can't even believe how great it is. And so I said, Shingo, I got to come back and bring my family. And he goes, okay, well, we're going to try to set up a real legit tour for you. In order to get enough people, I think we need to do something bigger. And so he said, maybe I'll write a piece for the occasion. And he came up with this idea of writing a piece for me as soloist, but with an orchestra of guitars. And the idea was, well, since all these local players were going to be there, more people would come because there's their, their friends and their kids and their parents, you know. Well, that totally worked. We got a really good crowd. But this piece just like blew everybody away. It just did something. The people in the orchestra were so nice and so appreciative. I mean, this, you know, people were crying and, you know, it was like, and he, he really hit this chord with this piece and it, it has an interesting title. It's Concerto de Los Angeles, but it, he didn't mean for it to be talking about LA. It's talking about angels. Three angels of the guitar, he calls it. First one is dedicated to Soar and the second one to Targa and the last one to Brower even though he's not technically an angel yet. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, close enough. The soar is really very much in the style of soar. There's some direct quotes, disguised and some not so disguised. The targa doesn't sound very much like targa. It sounds like it's a sort of takamitsu meets targa. But the last movement, Brower, is, is really, really Brower-esque, and it's super fun. Um, so I, you know, we premiered it there, and then we ended up, I, bring, gave, I brought him here to the GFA in 2006, and he conducted it. Played in that one. Yeah, and and it's really fun. And then we did it. We did it in China. We did it in, in Japan again. And then I ended up doing it a bunch of times in the U.S. without him. Every time we did it, it was just the orchestra was just excited, and they were happy, and the audience was excited, and it was just a really positive thing. And and so it was really successful and fun. And then you know last March, you know 2011, when the tsunami and earthquake hit, you know I I was in the middle of a tour doing doing Shingo's piece. And I realized, number one, the piece I'm playing is really powerful, but I gotta do something to help Shingo, like cheer him up. And I talked to the guys in the quartet and I said, let's commission Shingo to write a piece for, for us, for the quartet. And it turned out that the following March, we were supposed to do some high school residencies. There's a great program in Loudoun County, Virginia. We were supposed to play at the Brownsville Guitar Ensemble Festival. And they said, sure, why, why not? So I asked Shingo to write this piece. So in a space of, of three weeks, we did four performances. How old were the kids? All different ages. There's some as young as like 10, and, and amateur players as old as 70. But most of them were, were either high school kids or college kids. The piece was, that he wrote for us was called Shiki, and it's really cool, and it's dedicated to the victims of the earthquake and tsunami. Shiki means a few things in Japanese, but it also can mean seasons. And so it's based on seasonal folk songs of Japan. But spring is always there. And he wanted this to happen because he wanted people to remember what happened in the spring. The, the Concerto de Los Angeles is tricky. It's tough to put together. Shiki's a lot more simple, but it, but it really has a, has a great effect. It was really amazing trip. And you know he was wonderful and he was very appreciative. I think when people met him, you know, got to get a sense of his personality and stuff, they, they really were touched. There's a really beautiful video of the premiere. It's not really of the, the performance, but it's a story about the premiere. It's called Journey to Shiki. Okay. Journey to Shiki, and it's on Vimeo. 
S-H-I-K-I? S-H-I-K-I, yeah. And it's really worth saying. It's only about eight minutes. It was really great. Some of the kids in the orchestra and talking to, to Shingo, it's really moving, actually. It's very, it's very beautiful. So before I leave you with William Cannon Geyser and Shingo Fuji's homage to Leo Brower, the third movement of his Concierto de Los Angeles, or Concerto for the Three Angels of the Guitar, I'd like to say thanks for listening to All Strings Considered. I'm your host, Scott Wolf. All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Guitar Salon International, the world's largest selection of fine classical and flamenco guitars and accessories. If you like the show, don't forget to rate on iTunes, like it on Facebook, and follow on Twitter at All Strings. Until next time, enjoy the music.
Thank you.